Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives Philip Hello and welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. To those who listened to our first series of episodes, we are thrilled to welcome you back. And to those who are joining our show for the first time, thank you for listening. If you'd like to go back and check out any of the prior conversations on the Legacy podcast, you'll find those in our feed as well as on our website at www.wemet.org. In those conversations, you'll hear discussions with We Met Fun leaders, supporters, donors, and alumni who have helped the fund arrive where we are today. Excited to celebrate our 75th anniversary in 2024 and awarding $3.25 million in need-based college scholarships to more than 450 hardworking young men and women. Thank you for the support, and we look forward to bringing you more conversations like these over the next few months. On today's episode, we are honored to welcome on one of the greatest golfers of all time, a World Golf Hall of Famer, and the 2024 We Met Annual Banquet honoree, Julie Inkster. Julie grew up in Santa Cruz, California, the youngest of three children and extremely competitive with her older brothers. While she played nearly every other sport growing up, Julie picked up golf in her late teens after having taken a job at Pastiempo Golf Club. She was clearly a prodigy as she qualified for a U.S. Women's Open in high school and eventually earned a golf scholarship to San Jose State University. This launched a prolific amateur career for Julie, including, among other accolades, being named a three-time All-American, winning an astounding three straight U.S. Women's Amateur titles, and becoming the number one ranked women's amateur golfer in the world. When the time came to turn professional in 1983, Julie came out strong on the LPGA Tour and won an event in her debut season, and the next year won two major championships along with a handful of other victories. Very quickly, Julie was thrust into the spotlight of women's golf as the next big thing, and she would go on to win 12 tournaments in the 1980s, including two more majors. The next decade for Julie was one of transition and continued success, both personally and professionally. She and her husband, Brian, became parents in the early 90s as they welcomed their daughters, Haley and Corey. And on tour, Julie recorded nine wins in the 1990s, with five coming in 1999 alone. That banner season included two major championships, the U.S. Women's Open and the McDonald's LPGA Golf Championship, becoming one of only six players in LPGA history to complete the career Grand Slam. Julie is also among the most successful American players in Solheim Cup history. She competed in her first Solheim Cup in 1992 and would go on to make 11 total Solheim Cup appearances, including three as U.S. captain. In 2000, the seven-time major champion was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame and remains a central figure in the game. In recent years, Julie has taken on a new chapter as a golf commentator, serving both in the booth and as an interviewer for Golf Channel, Fox Sports, and NBC. We are so grateful to Julie for taking the time to talk with us, and we are extremely excited to welcome her to Boston on March 21st, 2024, as she will receive the Francis We Met Award for lifelong contributions to golf at the upcoming We Met Annual Banquet. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our conversation with the legendary Julie Inkster. Tough couple of weeks, I guess, for the Niners, huh, Julie? Yeah, phew, good thing we're going into the buy right That's right, yeah, that's right. I don't know if you saw my email, I ran into one of our former recipients, Brad Faxon, was over at Fenway yes. Friday. He yes. lit up, he didn't know yet, and he said, oh man, I'm going to have to get to Julie soon, I love her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we go way back to our Fox days where we were broadcasting, so he was kind of my wingman, or I was his wing woman, <laughs> you know, one way or the other, but spent a lot of time with Brad. He's a good guy. He's great for the game of golf. It was amazing. We kind of had a kickoff the other day in the room with uh, another one of our colleagues, Jeff. 
It was Allison Walsh. It was Candy Hanneman. And then one of their friends out here, oh, Sue God, Curtin. Yeah. And just the names, everyone had stories bouncing back and forth. Oh, how are they doing? Oh, I just ran <laughs> into her. It was, it's such a small <laughs> world, a great world. Yeah. I love Candy Hanneman too. She's great. Julie, it's an honor to have you on. Without question, you're one of the great golfers of the last half century, and you've left an indelible impact on the game. From your college and amateur golf dominance to the professional ranks to your Solheim Cup record as a player and a captain, the resume you've built on and off the course is nearly impeccable, and we're excited to go through some of the great highlights of your career. And we usually start these conversations talking about kind of how you came to the game of golf, and we will get there. But before we start, we want to note that the entire Remet Fund community is honored and thrilled to welcome you to Boston this coming March to celebrate your becoming the 2024 Remet Award Honoree for Lifelong Contributions to Golf. Congratulations, of course. We're looking forward to what will be a great night where you'll join the likes of some of golf greats like Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, Tom Watson, Annika Sorenstam, Nancy Lopez, among so many others who have received the award. So as someone who has spent a career in and around golf, understanding its history, can you talk about the meaning of this award specifically and the emotions you have joining that amazing list of past We Met Award honorees? Well, just those names you mentioned right there for someone that really just fell into golf to be honored with the likes of those amazing players, both on and off the golf course, really lets me know that maybe I've done some things right and left the game in a better place. But getting this prestigious award with the people that have won it, sometimes I pinch myself and say, how did I get here? but super honored to be your honoree and to come to Boston. And hopefully I'll represent the Women Award nicely. We know you will. And we're all looking forward to it. Golf season just kind of wrapped up this past weekend here in New England, Julie. So we're already looking forward to yeah, the spring. I know, I, know, I, know. I know. It's so disappointing when the nights get shorter and it gets colder in the morning and colder at night. And you know it's coming and it's just it's not a good feeling. Well, going from the upcoming We Met Bank, we're going to celebrate your career and circling back all the way to the beginning before golf was even a central part of your life. Take us to your house growing up, Julie. Your father was a firefighter, also I think a former professional baseball player. You've noted in the past, you grew up very athletic, competitive, everything you did, especially with your brothers. <laughs> Do you think that incredible competitive drive, which obviously led you to a great golf career, began from a young age? Was it something from your parents? I think you're born a bit with it, your heart and your gut. But I do think my brothers shaped that because every day was a survival day for me, both mentally and physically. Having two older brothers, you could never take any time off. It was always just trying to get to the next day. But I did do everything they did. I played baseball. I played football. My poor mom wanted a girl so bad, and basically she got another tomboy. But... <laughs> I just love sports and I still love sports. That's a big part of our lives. My kids, my husband and I, we love watching sports. And my mom kind of succumbed to it and started, instead of the dresses and the white gloves, she started putting me in colored dresses so I wouldn't show the dirt as much. <laughs> Julie, I can sympathize with that. I'm the youngest of three as well. And I have an older brother. And so I had plenty of bumps and bruises along the way as well, but also played all the same sports and did all the same things he did. So I can totally understand that. So as you know, working in golf is one of the central aspects of earning a WeMet scholarship. You spent many years working at Pasatiempo Golf Club in the cart barn, on the driving range, out in the snack shack. All three of us here on this call, we worked at golf courses. I certainly remember them some of the favorite summers of my life. What are some of the memories that come to mind when you think of the days working at the course? Were there any lessons or skills learned as a teenager that you feel are unique to working in golf? 
Yeah, I think, well, one, we lived on the golf course. We lived on the 14th hole of Paso Tiempo, but we used it for football and wiffle ball and flashlight tag and selling golf balls and lemonade. And then when I actually got a job when I was 15 at the golf course, parking the carts and picking up the range, that's when I learned about playing golf. And basically, I got some clubs from the back room and just started playing. And and I realized there was a bunch of good-looking guys at the golf course playing golf. And it really gave me something I could do that I wasn't competing with my brothers. And it was something I could do on my own. I love team sports. I love everything about team sports. But you kind of have to have a partner to practice. And I love to practice. So golf was just, I mean, I just felt like I was built for it. I was super competitive and I wanted to get better. And so it definitely shaped my career and who I am. I mean, if I didn't get a job at the golf course, would I have ever played golf? Because my parents weren't members. My dad was a fireman. We couldn't really afford a golf membership. But I had the opportunity to play and practice up there. And the pros really helped me out, just giving me some tips and stuff like that. And we would play. As soon as we were off work and we could get out there, we'd play as much as we could play. We weren't on the range developing our swings or swing speeds or track mans or whatever. We just play. We try to learn how to hit a lot of different shots. And I think really that bode well for my career as far as USGA events is, I don't know if you ever played it, but it's a super hard golf course. And when I was able to shoot in the 70s out there, when I ended up going to San Jose State and I'd play an easy golf course, I had to learn how to shoot low because in the 70s at Pass Tempos is a good score. And it had very undulated greens. They were fast. They were quadrant greens. So you had to hit your irons in a good spot. So I really think it developed the whole aspect of my game from just being a car girl, <laughs> picking up the range. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy how stuff like that just kind of shapes your life. It's just amazing. I mean, you hear nowadays prodigies are starting out five, six, seven years old. You picked up a club at the age of 15 after picking the range. I mean, you start practicing those first few days, weeks, months. Yes, you wanted to carve out something for yourself. But when did you realize, you know what, I have a knack for this? Like, were all the pros clamoring to book you for lessons? or <laughs> No, so I started in the summer when I was, I just turned 15. And basically, the men's golf coach at Harbor High, the boys golf coach at Harbor High, you know, we didn't have a girls team called my parents on a rotary phone, by the way, and said, hey, I hear Julie's playing golf. Would she want to come out for the guys team? And my parents said, yeah, we'll ask her. And I was like, yeah, sure. And that kind of motivated me to really practice a lot during that summer. And I didn't make the varsity team my sophomore year, but I made the JV team and I was able to play some matches. And then from there, I played in like a one-day tournament at 45 minutes a day, one day tournament in San Jose. My mom would take me and I got beat. I mean, I was not very good, but I stuck to it. But I still also played basketball. That was my love. And our practices were in the evening. So I could practice after school. And really, I'd get up when I got my driver's license, I'd get up before school and go practice, go to school, practice afterwards, go to basketball practice. So I was addicted and I improved pretty quickly. So you never think, I mean, I didn't even know what the LPGA was, basically. My dad, he grew up caddying down in Los Angeles at Wilshire Country Club. So he knew the game and he loved the game. And 
I think he was super happy that I ended up picking up the game and playing. So it's a crazy ride how quickly I did improve. Did you ever have an opportunity to have your father caddy for you in those years where you kind of were learning right before college? Was there ever a chance that he had some caddy experience? Oh, yeah. So, well, I started playing well, All-American my freshman year in college. And I got invited to play in the Bing Crosby Pro-Am as an amateur. And I played a few years and my dad caddied for me in that. And he caddied for me a couple times in California State Amateurs. So, yeah, he got the caddy for me. And it's a lot of great memories having him on the bag. That's so cool. I'm not a particularly good golfer. I don't know how my dad and I would do if he was caddying for me. We struggle in scramble events to be on the same team. So, you know, I don't know how that would go. Well, you know, I think it's a little different with a father-daughter than a (laughs) father-son. I think there's a little more compassion with a father-daughter than a father-son. That's fair. That's fair. So obviously you were a touted recruit out of Harbor High School. You chose to attend San Jose State. And I'm fairly certain that they're thrilled you made that decision. As you went on to be a three-time All-American, you won a great deal of individual titles. You're in San Jose State's Athletic Hall of Fame. In college, you had just an obvious run of dominance. At that time, did it feel like the game was coming easily to you? Like other than natural skill, what can you put your finger on as far as why you were experiencing so much success compared to your teammates and people on other teams? I think a lot of it, and I wasn't really a touted college player, really sounds a state to back a little bit. No one really knew who I was until I tried to qualify for the U.S. Open when I was 18 at Fresno, and my dad caddied for me there, and I shot the lowest score I ever shot, which was 72, and I made the U.S. Open, and it was back in Indianapolis, and I actually made the cut, and then the Tulsa's and the Arizona States, and they're like, who are you? Where'd you come from? And I already accepted a scholarship to San Jose State just because I'm kind of a homebody and I wanted to be close to home. And it was a perfect fit for me. I needed to go somewhere where I knew I was going to play because I I was still really developing my game. And I didn't want to have to try to qualify every week to try to play. We only had seven players on the team and we had a great coach who wasn't really strict on today we're going to chip and tomorrow we're going to hit balls and the next day we're going to putt. He kind of let you work on what you thought you needed to work on. And that really helped me develop my game. And then again, playing against, we were very fortunate that we had a really good golf team. So we got to travel and play against the best colleges, the best tournaments. Basically, San Jose State women's golf was the highest ranked of any sports, men or women at that time. And our coach was a great fundraiser. And so he made sure that we got to play in all the best tournaments. And that really helped me develop my game because I didn't play outside of California until I qualified for the U.S. Open. It's crazy. I was 18. And now, like you said, 12 and 13, they're professional amateurs. They play all around the world. So the first time I ever played outside of California was the U.S. Open at Indianapolis Country Club. Wow. I mean, your coach is probably saying, oh, nowadays you'd be having transfer portal conversations or how do I keep Jim Baxter here? I know. I I ended up marrying a guy that worked at Paso Tiempo. So, and we're still married. So it worked out pretty good both ways. Everybody won. Well, you accomplished something as an amateur that very few have done, Julie, on the men's or women's side of the game. On the women's side, it It hadn't been done in nearly 50 years. You won three consecutive U.S. Women's Amateur Championships, 80, 81, 82. 
establishing yourself as the best women's amateur in the world. Was it here? Was it at this time that you knew you were going to make professional golf your career? Had you already kind of decided that early on in college or was it after those three? Again, match play and metal play were really two different things. And I was really good at match play. I just love that mano a mano. It's just me and you and we go out and we compete. And I don't know, it just fit my personality, I guess. I was a homebody and I didn't really know if I wanted to play professional golf. But after I won the U.S. Amateur once, are you turning pro? Are you going to turn pro? Are you going back for your senior year? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm going back for my, yeah, I mean, it was just a no-brainer. But then after winning three in a row, you always want to take the next step. And, you know, I was married by then. I got married going to my junior year. And so Brian had a good job and we could afford to do it. And I wanted to give it a try. And I ended up missing the first qualifying school. So I played some mini tour events and won a couple of those and and then ended up getting my card and just kind of, again, being super competitive. You know, I was never, ever the best ball striker or the best driver or the best putter or chipper, but I always thought I was the best grinder and kind of the never give up attitude. And I think that bodes well for match play also. You hit on a lot there, Julie. Your resume clearly shows that you're an incredible match play player from amateur golf all the way through to Solheim Cup. So without question, you had some edge about your game that stood out as compared to somebody else, even if it's one or two percent. It made the difference in those matches. But you hit on something there as far as your qualifying for Q school. And candidly, looking through your career, it's very difficult to find a time that you had a blip or a struggle in your career. It seemed like, especially in those early years. And I wanted to ask you about that as far as you went to qualify for Q school and you didn't get it that first time around. Do you think that experiencing some level of failure can actually be beneficial to the individual? Like what were some lessons you took away from that week at Q school? Oh yeah. I mean, I learned so much missing the Q school. First of all, back then they only took 10 players. So 10 players at 144. I mean, you got to be on your game. So I went right in from college golf to qualifying and I saw these mini tour players with the P by their name for pro. And it kind of freaked me out. Like, oh my God, these guys are pros when I'm just an amateur. And I didn't really know that they're pros, but they're still finding their way also. And so when I missed qualifying school and I went and played, I took about a month off to try to figure out, do I want to do this? Of course I wanted to do it. So I got back on the horse and started practicing and I went to Sweetwater in Houston in July. And let me just tell you, it's hot <laughs> in Houston in July. And Brian caddied for me and I got off to a good start, but I don't think I would have been the player I became without failure and realizing that golf is a game where if you win once or twice a year, you had a great year. So you're failing a lot. And it's your work ethic and how you mentally come back from that. And it definitely made me a better player. It definitely made me appreciate when I did get my card because they, again, only took 10 players. It's not an easy game and you're going to have a lot of ups and downs and it's how you handle that. Well, you certainly handled it and took full advantage of that opportunity when it came to you. You won in your first year on tour in 83. 84 was really the true full rookie year as a full-time tour member, and you won rookie of the year. 
Oh, and two majors that year as well, which is just amazing. So here you are on top of the golfing world just after a second try at Q School. You know, those two majors, did it occur to you? I mean, again, we're quickly into your career here. Did it occur to you how unique it was to win two majors that early in professional golf? I mean, you were the first LPGA Tour rookie to ever win two majors. Yeah. I mean, again, I think past tempo really prepared me for major tournaments because they're always a little bit harder golf courses. They set them up a little bit tougher, but I was kind of a streaky golfer. I'd go in streaks where I played really good. And then I would go in streaks where I didn't play as well. And I was kind of always one that I felt like if I didn't put the work in, I really didn't deserve to play well. So sometimes I kind of got in my head that way. You look back on it and say that was stupid thinking that way, but that's kind of the way I was wired. So I've always been a hard worker, but I don't really think you appreciate winning majors until you get older in life and realize majors is really where it's at. It's like, it took me forever to win the U.S. Open. And would my career be as decorated or whatever if I didn't win the Open? Probably. But also, it would have been a great career. But I always wanted to win the national championship. And I think I put so much pressure on myself to do that, that I didn't even have a chance when I started. Yeah, and and obviously you did eventually go on to do that multiple times, and we'll chat about that later on. Before that, I've listened to a lot of interviews with you, Julie. I don't know that I've ever heard you reference being nervous, at least in a tournament sense. And I think maybe in regards to the Solheim Cup, but not necessarily in regards to your play for just Julie Inkster. Can you put a finger on why that might be the case? I know you have such a competitive drive and you had so much success in match play and didn't ever seem like you were nervous when you teed it up on the first hole. Well, I hit it well because I was always nervous. It scared me when I wasn't nervous because I think you can handle nerves a couple ways. One, you got to know who you are and how nerves affect your game. But when I was nervous, it made me pay more attention to my game. And when I hit the ball really good on the range, I was like, oh, no. I mean, I was probably the worst range player before I teed off than anybody in the world. I'm just so glad we don't have social media when I played because (laughs) when they were watching me hit balls on the range, they'd be like, how is she in the lead? Or how is she (laughs) in the last group? (laughs) So I just think it made me pay more attention to my body. And I was really big on taking really good practice swings. And that kind of really helped my nerves settle it down when I take a really good practice swing and then I get up and go. Well, I mean, the success, obviously we know, stretched a long time and there's different chapters, if you will, to your career, Julian. We want to kind of touch on in the early 90s, you and your husband, Brian, welcomed two daughters, Haley and Corey, coming back to professional golf after having children. You've spoken about it. It was a decision. How you would handle it was something that you struggled with. Maybe it was a little chaotic. Like, do I focus on golf? Do I focus on the kids? How do you focus on both? Even though they're probably doing just fine. I'm a father, and I think about those things as well, even though the kids are doing okay. But it's hard to not worry about that. And golf's hard. And you were in two playoffs when the girls were young, winds didn't come back to you like riding a bike. But at what point, when and how did things start to click for you in the mid late nineties that you can do both? That's a really good question. When I got pregnant with Haley in 90, we didn't have maternity and we didn't have daycare. And so at six weeks, I'm playing in the dinosaur with Haley. 
after six weeks. And I'm traveling with my parents. And then I'm also traveling with Brian's mom. So my parents would come out for a couple of weeks. They'd go home and then Brian's mom would come out and help me. And it, it was a cluster. Uh, I played 84 to 90 by myself. So six years after I played, I'd come home and take a nap, watch some TV, read a book, da da da. Now I'm in my golf clothes until nine o'clock at night because I was really big on Haley getting out every day, taking her to the park or taking her on a walk or whatever, getting her her bath, putting her to bed, going to, she had a lot of ear infections. We did a lot of doctors in different cities, but I felt like if I was going to play golf, I was going to play with my kids. So my kids were going to travel with me because I wanted to be a very involved mother. So yeah, I struggled a lot with my golf. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She's kind of like Mrs. Cleaver, you know, the cookies when you got home and the hot dinner on the table. And I'd rent residence in or I'd stay with housing with people I knew from previous years. But it was a huge adjustment for me. I didn't feel like I was being a good mom. I didn't feel like I was being a good golfer. And 92, I started playing a little better. You know, I lost a couple of playoffs. But 90, 91... 93, 94, and under five were lean years because now I'm traveling with two kids. I did hire a nanny when Corey was one and Haley was five. And they went to Catholic schools and they were really good about letting them out, taking their work with them. And they knew how important it was for them to be with me. So I had the same nanny for 13 years, which was a godsend because when they did stay home and I went out, she'd pick them up from school. Brian would get them to bed. It was a team effort, believe me. But in 95, I wasn't playing very good. And I've got two kids and I'm traveling and I'm going, what am I doing? And I told Brian, I said, I think I'm just going to hang it up. And I said, I'm not doing anybody any good. And he goes, you know what? Why don't you go see, there's a guy named Mike McGetrick, who his wife played out on tour and they had a couple of kids, but I really liked the way he taught. I always listened to him on the range. And he goes, why don't you go see Mike and see what he says? And he was in Colorado. So I flew to Colorado he watched me hit a few balls and I'm a realist. I said, Hey Mike, if if you think I can get it back, I'll go for it. But if you think that time's past me, just tell me. He goes, No, we can get this back on track, no problem. So I started working with him at the end of ninety five, ninety six, I started playing a better seven. Like I said, I need to see myself play better. And then ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, I just played really great golf. I was in a good space as far as the kids knew what I did. It was different from what their best friends, parents did, but I ended up making a lot of good friends from Haley and Corey's school that if I got in a pinch, they would pick them up. I got involved in their school. I did hot lunches. I did library. I coached when they were in fourth grade, fifth grade. I have assistant coach on their sport teams. So I made it when I was home, super involved with their activities. And when they were traveling with me on the road, I didn't want them to come out and watch me play golf. I wanted them to go do something fun. We bring friends on the road. So I try to not make it about me and try to make it about an experience traveling. 
I think that's really, really cool. And by the way, Mike was right. You did have a lot left in the tank. I recently became a father myself. My son was born in May and Congrats. I struggled to, thank you. I struggled to like work from home if he's there. So I give you a lot of credit to try to be a professional golfer and also have two children. I know you mentioned that you like to do stuff away from the golf course when they were with you, but when did you first notice that they came to realize that mom to them was Julie Inkster to the sporting world, that you were someone different to everybody else than how they saw you? Usually it was in an airport when someone would say, hey, Julie, you know, I really like your game. I love following you. And they look at these people and they leave and he goes, who was that? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but pretty much airports, restaurants, that pretty much when they realized that I did a job in the limelight of people. Julie, you mentioned that there was a lean chapter in there, but there's a local highlight during that stretch. I'm a WeMet scholarship alumnus, and I achieved my service to golf from working for many years at Blue Hill Country Club just outside of Boston, which I know yes. you're familiar yes. with. As 91, you're yes. a new mom. You did win the LPGA yes. Bay State. So I get to yes. lump myself in with the Hall of Fame. We both have good memories there. Yeah. <laughs> any highlights from that week or any New England golf that you've experienced? Yeah, I'll tell you the highlight. Kathy Whitworth was the Solheim Cup captain then. And I was going to have to be a captain's pick because I had a lean 90. And winning that tournament got me to have Kathy Whitworth call me and say I made the Solheim Cup team. So that was really cool. And yeah, so I was super pumped. Because if I didn't win, I don't think I would have made the team. <laughs> and speaking of the Solheim Cup, it's amazing how every time the Solheim Cup or the Ryder Cup comes around, we hear from talking heads for months on TV or podcasts with advice about how the captain should approach selecting their picks. You know, everyone has their own opinions. We're fortunate to have a three-time Solheim captain who we can ask directly about that process. So for you personally, how did you approach your captain's picks? Did you like that level of choice and flexibility? And did it weigh on you personally where you have relationships with some of the people who both made the team and didn't make the team? Yeah, I mean, I'm one that just give me 12 players and I'll deal with it. I hated the captain's picks because you're going to disappoint somebody, even though they've had two years to make the team. And I get like 20 players before the process started and I go have dinner with them. And, and I just said, hey, listen, you have two years to make the team. And if you're going to rely on me, to make a captain's pick, I'm going to do what's best for the team, regardless if we're best buddies or I don't know you at all or whatever, but I'm going to do what's best for the team. And being a player on the team is completely different than being a captain. Being a player, you're just worried about your partner, your match. Just tell me when I'm teeing off and I'm out. I'm going to go get you a point. But being a captain, I learned a ton about myself. When I got into this, I didn't know what type of leader I was going to be. I didn't know if the team respected the way I led. I didn't know how I make 12 women click in one week. How am I going to do this? But I learned that being honest up front, handling players, I didn't make them all take a personality test. So I kind of really knew who needed a hug and who needed a <laughs> kick in the butt and, and who, if I hugged, they would kick me in the butt. So I think it was super important for me to learn who my team was and go from there. But I mean, the bottom line is the players have to play. But I think if you can put them in a place where they think they can succeed and a place where they believe in what you're doing, I think it really helps their mindset to be super competitive and not give up. 
you had plenty of experience knowing what worked and what you liked as a player when it came time to be a captain with all your playing experience too. So I can definitely see that. Yeah. And the thing is, when I was the captain, I was pretty much still playing with these girls. And so I'd grab dinner with them or on a plane ride, we're sitting next to each other. And believe me, it wasn't a dictatorship. I really wanted their input on what do they want? What makes them tick? What makes them want to be on the Solheim Cup team? Because I just don't think it's about the wins and losses. I really think it's more about the memories and the experience you get from being a team, doing the dinners, playing practice rounds together, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and the stories being told from the older players to the younger players and vice versa. And I can't tell you the wins and losses the Solheim Cups I played in, but I can tell you a lot of great stories. And that, to me, is what the Solheim and the Ryder Cup is really about. Well, yeah, I mean, golf is about, to me, the people and the memories. And I do want to touch on the Julie Inkster memories and the tournaments that stick out to you. Seven majors, but I think for many of the golf fans listening I want to hit on one of the ones that's more memorable for them as well. Your return to Prairie Dunes for that U.S. Open in 2022, which was the site of your very first U.S. Women's Amateur in 1980. Stacked Fields, Kari Webb, Sari Park, Annika. Talk to us about the emotion leading up to Prairie Dunes, which was a familiar course, maybe a crowd pulling for you. Did you prepare any differently for that? I really didn't. When I went back to the U.S. Amateur in 1980, I just got married and we were on our honeymoon up in Canada and I played one round of golf and I think I probably shot 90. And I told Brian on the way home, I go, I'm not going to the U.S. Amateur. And he goes, what? I go, I haven't played. I haven't practiced. I just don't feel like I'm ready. And Brian goes, your parents will kill me if you don't go to the U.S. Amateur. So I ended up going back there and I kind of finished in the middle of the pack in the qualifying. And then I just started getting better and better and better and better. And for me to win that was unbelievable. But what's even more unbelievable, I hadn't been back there. I mean, to get to Hutchinson, Kansas is not very easy. And so I hadn't been back there till 2022 when we had the U.S. Open there. So it's 22 years later, I go back. And I have to say the clubhouse was the same. I think the people that waited on us were still there. <laughs> Chocolate chip cookie recipe. <laughs> yes, yes. It was sweet tea. I mean, it was back in time. But I went there again, not playing very well. I wasn't hitting the ball that great, but I was putting amazing. And those greens were super hard. And again, this is where my grinding comes through. And I was always the last one on the range every day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, last one on the range, just trying to find something. And my chipping and putting was holding me together. It was like glue, just holding it, about ready to fall apart. And finally on Saturday night, I kind of found something in my swing. So I went with it the next day and started hitting the ball pretty good. And my putting was still there. And I think I was a couple shots behind Annika. She was behind me. I had a great pairing. I was playing with Shaney Waugh, who's a really good friend of mine. And I know I birdied number two, and I chipped in on seven, and I just started getting some momentum. And I hit some squirrely shots, but my putter saved me again. And then all of a sudden, 22 years later, I come back, and I've 
won the U.S. Open at Prairie Dunes. I mean, it was nostalgic. I mean, it was like, how does that happen? But I've always been a player that when I played well on a golf course, I usually play pretty well year after year. That's amazing. And then so you've won every title imaginable, as we've discussed on the women's side of the game. You've received many accolades. You were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2000. And Julie, this past year, Jenny Bay, a superstar out of the University of Georgia, received the Julie Inkster Senior Award, which is presented each year to the highest ranked collegiate golfer who is in her final year of eligibility. And we know this award means a great deal to you. In fact, I believe you even go above and beyond to mentor these recipients. So what about those specific qualifications for a four-year student-athlete stand out to you as important? And how have the recent changes to everything about being a student-athlete amateur NIL, how have those had any sort of impact on this award? Well, the reason I, we started this award, and Workday is a big part of it. They've really helped me out with the scholarship part of it, the financial part of it. But the LPJ Qualifying School is in September and October, November, and they have first stage, second stage. And as a collegiate player, you're allowed to go to LPJ qualifying as an amateur. And if you don't make it, you just go back to school. And if you do make it, you have the option of bypassing your spring year of college and just going on to the LPGA. And a lot of these schools have invested three and a half years in these kids. And you might be the fourth, fifth, and sixth player on your college team, and you really have a chance to win a national championship, which not a lot of people can say they've done. I didn't do it, San Jose State, and that would have been super cool to win a national championship. So all of a sudden, your one and two best players make the qualifying school, and they go turn pro, and now the school's not allowed to fill that scholarship. And now you don't have a chance to win a national championship. And I just think I love the commitment of going four years, representing your school, your teammates, your coach, and fulfilling that obligation. So we decided to do this award. And I don't want to just give them money and say, okay, good luck with your LPGA, because there's such a big difference going from college golf where everything's done for you. When do you practice? When do you work out? This is what we're wearing today. You need to be at the bus at 8.30. So you you don't do anything for yourself. And now all of a sudden you're on the LPGA and you got to do all that for yourself. You got to find a caddy. You got to rent a car. You got to find out where you're staying. What am I wearing? How much do I practice my short game versus my long game? Going around a new course. How do I map that out? And then, you know, these days coaches can tell you what to hit and where to put it. Now I got to do that by myself. So I want to be hands-on. And so these girls have my number. Uh, in fact, I just, Tasha Un, who was my third recipient just a while ago, and they have my number. They can call me anytime. We talk through things. If they're playing well, if not playing well, how do I find a caddy? Where do I stay? I'm not sure I'm practicing the right things. And I've been through it all. I've been on the top. I've been on the bottom. I've been in the middle. So um, I've had to climb myself back up. And so I just try to help these girls navigate going from college to professional golf. And my first recipient, Natalie Sabasian, she kind of got the raw in the deal because kind of during COVID and she couldn't play anything. But when she finally did play, she played a year on the Epson and didn't make it. And she called me and said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm going to go to med school. That's kind of been my passion and I want to follow through with that. So 
I'm going to send back some of the money that I have. And I go, no, I go, you did your obligation. You played four years for your school and you represented your school and your team. I said, take that money and apply it to med school. So it's not just they have to play golf. They can do whatever they want to do. Now, as far as mentoring her in med school, that's probably out of my <laughs> out of my pay grade. So I, I really think it's a good award and it's an award that I'm super passionate about. And I want these girls to succeed and to follow their heart, follow their passion for the game. That's really cool. You have to applaud, you know, you're investing in their talent. You're investing in the ecosystem of college golf there. And from that anecdote, I mean, you're investing in their full person trajectory. So fantastic on you, Julia. Yeah, there's a lot of things outside of golf that how you play a pro-am. Playing a pro-am is big. It represents the LPGA. It represents you. You can learn a lot about different people, what they do in business. And you can learn a lot how to do business and get their cards and thank them. And that's how you develop relationships. That's how you build your brand. It's not about you. It's about building your relationships in golf. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned pro-ams. I think I just want to transition here to something from last week. I mean, LPGA players have been described as the most approachable in sports. Last week, LPGA over at Fenway Park announced they'll be returning to New England for the next five years with the FM Global Championship next year during Labor Day weekend at TPC Boston, investing in the talent FM Global there. It'll be the largest non-major purse of the entire season next year, that event. I know you spend a great deal of time advising the leaders of the LPGA. You're a mentor to these young players working on the future of the tour and golf in general. What are some of the things that you're excited about, about the future of professional golf and any amateur golf? Well, one, they're really good. Just look at Lexi playing in a men's tournament. These are elite golfers, and the LPGA makes about 10% of what the guys make. TV, trying to find them on the TV. Sometimes they're on at 10 o'clock. Sometimes they're on at 1 o'clock. There's no set TV exposure. And I think I know who Lydia Ko is and Jen Young Ko is. But a lot of people don't know one Ko from another Ko or one Kim from another Kim. And all these girls are super personable, super outgoing. They speak English. They want to be known. And I think the LPGA could do a better job on maybe during a telecast, do a five-minute segment on what they like to do off the golf course instead of saying, hey, she's got 150, it's a seven iron or it's an eight iron. Just say, hey, Jin Young Ko loves to, in the off season, go skiing or she loves to cook or she's big into reading. And so then you make it a little more personable about how you know maybe you connect with Jin Young Ko on, hey, I like to cook too or hey, I like to read. So I think we can do a better job on getting to know who the LPGA players are. And I think the USJ now doing their federation and growing the game of women's golf early is going to really help because all these other countries have federations that support girls golf. And the United States is the only country, major country, that doesn't have that. And we have a lot of great women girl athletes. But if I'm a parent and I'm middle class or whatever, I'm putting basketball shoes on them or I'm putting soccer shoes on them, putting a lacrosse stick in their hand, something I can afford. And now I think we can grow the American side of game, but we're like 10 to 15 years behind what's going on in Asia, Europe, Mexico, Canada, mm -hmm. you name it. 
Well, taking those steps to change the future and you talk about storytellers and I know we all enjoy when we see you on TV, Julie, and you also have a dear friend and a fellow World Golf Hall of Famer, Judy Rankin, will be our moderator for your fireside chat on March 21st. We know it means a great deal to you that she'll be up on stage with you that night. Another great storyteller, Judy Rankin. Did your close bond develop during her broadcasting, like during the heights of your career, or was it when she was your Solheim captain? She's a legend herself. I mean, that's going to be special. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, when Judy was out doing television, she kind of scared me because she's super quiet until you get to know her. And I didn't really know her that well. And then in 1998, when she was my Solheim Cup captain, I really got to know her and Yippie a lot better. And we became really good friends. And really, when Yippie started getting sick, cancer, I would call Judy every couple weeks and just say, hey, how you doing? We talk a while. It's her and Yippie were really, they were a strong bond. And I knew it just watching him not getting better was really weighing on her. And so we talk a lot. And I think that's really where we developed a closer bond. And she's always been, when I started getting into TV for Fox, she was right there listening to my telecast. She'd give me some feedback. So she's been a big mentor to me, but also a really good friend. And she loves the game of golf and she's just passionate about growing the game. And she really helped Dottie Pepper in broadcasting and Kate Cockrell and Morgan and getting more women on broadcast. And so I'm super pumped that she said she would do it. Plus, she loves Boston. So I think that was kind of a little <laughs> bit of a thing, too. So win win. We cannot wait. It's going to be so much fun in March. And Julie, this has been a lot of fun. And we really, we cannot thank you enough for your time today. But most importantly, for being the 2024 We Met Award honoree at our upcoming annual banquet and for championing young people, as you talked about in this conversation, both playing and working in golf. To that end, reflecting on your years when you were working the cart barn or on the range at Pasatiempo, receiving this award from the We Met Fund and having an endowed scholarship created at this organization. Does it sort of feel like a full circle moment to be closely involved with an organization that provides need-based scholarships for young men and women who are currently working as caddies or in cart barns or in driving ranges at courses throughout Massachusetts? Yeah, I mean, the We Met Award is really everything I'm about. It's growing the game and giving people opportunity to follow their dreams, whether it's in golf or being a lawyer or being a doctor or open up your own restaurant without scholarships and help. A lot of people won't be able to follow their dream. And we live in a great country where there's a lot of people that are willing to help out. And the We Met Award is one of them. And I look back on my career and I just pinch myself receiving the Bobby Jones Award. I mean, who would have thunk? I mean, my dad was a huge Bobby Jones fan. And here his daughter wins the award. I've been so blessed that golf has given me what it's given for someone that fell into it. And I look back and I'm like, I'm so glad I'm in my part of life right now and not trying to play because they're really good there right now. <laughs> and I would have to work super hard. But yeah, it's been such a great ride and it continues because with the Inkster Award and working with the LPGA and golf continues to give me something. And I just try to give back as much as I can because what it's done for me and my family. Well, we're fortunate to now be associated with you, Julie. So thank you. Yes, you got me for life. So <laughs> yeah. got to help out. Well, thank you so thank much, you. Julie. This was great. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to seeing you in March. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thomas, Colin, thank you. Thank you.